Welcome to Superhero Leadership, the podcast that explores outstanding leadership through the lens of some of the most successful superhero leaders in business, sports, politics, the military, and public service. This podcast is for anyone who aspires to great leadership. Our host, Peter Cuneo, has experienced superhero leadership throughout his life and career. From serving as a naval officer in the Vietnam War to being the CEO of Marvel Entertainment, Peter has completed seven business turnarounds in consumer products, media, and in entertainment, and served on the boards of many public and private enterprises, often as chairman. Drawing from his list of what he considers 32 essential qualities and characteristics for great leaders, Peter offers actionable takeaways you can implement into your own life and career today. Here's Peter to introduce his guest. It is my great pleasure to introduce a friend who is one of the highest quality people you could ever meet. Captain Charlie Plum, United States Navy retired. Charlie perfectly exemplifies the qualities we revere in leadership. In 1967, Captain Plum was a Navy pilot in the midst of the Vietnam War. He had flown 74 combat missions over North Vietnam. On May 19th, while flying an F-4 Phantom aircraft, he was shot down and became a prisoner of war. Captain Plum, callsign Plummer, was to spend over 2,000 days, almost six years, in captivity in what became known as the Hanoi Hilton. He and his fellow prisoners of war suffered deprivation, starvation, and torture, but they survived somehow. They were released in 1973. Included in the group was John McCain, who became a U.S. Senator, and Admiral James Stockdale, who received the Medal of Honor for his leadership as commanding officer of all the Navy, Air Force, and Marine prisoners. Captain Plum was raised on a farm in Kansas. He graduated in 1964 from the Naval Academy. And at one point, he was stationed at Miramar Naval Air Station, just north of San Diego. He was part of the organization that eventually became Top Gun. Captain Plum retired from the Navy after 31 years. His many decorations include the Silver Star and the Bronze Star for Valor. He was also awarded two Purple Hearts having been wounded twice. Today, Captain Plum is a motivational speaker talking to others about how to cope with life's difficulties and opportunities. I can't think of anyone more qualified to talk about our 32 essentials of superhero leadership. I want to welcome a very special human being, Captain Charlie Plum. Peter, it's great to be with you again, my friend. Charlie, obviously, you've been through an experience that very few people will ever experience. And it's very hard for people like me to even imagine what it was like. What did it first feel like when you were shot down? What was your thinking initially about surviving? First of all, I was in total shock. I didn't think they made a gun big enough to shoot down Charlie Plum. And I guess you have to approach combat that way. I had dodged missiles. I had fought with MiGs. I felt like I had proven myself at age 24 to be a pretty good warrior. And holy smokes, here comes a missile and it blows up this airplane and I find myself floating in the parachute, hanging there over enemy territory. I think I should interject that I also was a naval officer in Vietnam. I was a officer on a guided missile destroyer. I actually was controlling our aircraft over North Vietnam. Charlie was actually shot down before I got to Vietnam. But meeting Charlie and learning about his experiences is very emotional and special for me because of my background and involvement with what the Navy calls Airedales. Absolutely. And, and we couldn't have done it without you guys down there guiding us around. And you guys did a lot of plane guarding too, uh, running along behind the aircraft carriers in case we missed the wire and went in the drink. And we wouldn't have flown without those destroyers behind us. Guarding our flank. Yeah, my destroyer, the USS Joseph Strauss DDG-16. DDG means guided missile destroyer. We did do plane guarding. 
as Charlie's pointed out, basically we were on lifeguard duty. So when planes went down in the water, we were hoping that we'd be close enough to rescue the pilots. And we tried in our missions to get back to feet wet because we knew that the enemy pretty much controlled all of the feet dry and the ground there. But if we could get back to the water, you guys were going to come and get us. And, and a lot of guys were shot up uh, in combat and uh, limped back to the water. And, and in fact, uh, probably my most treacherous mission, I had a 57 millimeter shot that blew a hole in, in one of my tanks and, and shut my engine down. And I was very happy to see that water because I knew that over the water that you guys would come and get us. I'm thinking about your combat missions and I'm sure during those missions and teamwork was crucial. How did you foster a sense of trust, camaraderie among your fellow pilots? And how does this translate to effective team leadership? It's interesting that trust was absolutely essential. We learned that by doing a lot of the maneuvers, flying formation. I got to fly with the Blue Angels last November, as a matter of fact, and these guys fly the same kind of maneuvers that we were flying in flight training. Of course, they're a lot closer than we were there. 18 inches apart, but it was essential that you depend on your lead and it's essential that the lead depends on the wingman. And in a flight of four, if the leader makes a quick maneuver and the wingman don't know about it, you can get into real trouble. So we fostered that trust. And I think it's probably the greatest trust that two guys can have with each other is flying airplanes that 450 or 500 miles an hour, just a few inches apart. And that's what we had to do. In two or three cases, one of my wingmen would lose a radio and I'd have to bring him down through the soup. And some of the fog was so thick that the guy had to stay really close, but he didn't have a radio. And so he had to come down on my wing. And it was that kind of trust that we had to have in everything we did in the military. You mentioned your code name was Plumber. And 74 successful missions and over, I think, 100 carrier landings. But just five days before you were basically going to go back home, you were shot down. And of course, one has got to always wonder, given the hell that you all went through, how did you and your fellow prisoners maintain hope and resilience? Because you needed that to survive. It's true. And one of the interesting statistics that came out of that war is that the prisoners of war in Vietnam actually came back with considerably less PTSD than the guys on the ground. A study was done five years ago. It's in a book called Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. And the study was of all the combatants of Vietnam, 30.6% have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Of the prisoners of war, only 4% have PTSD. It's pretty amazing. And the 4% with the PTSD were primarily the guys who were shot down near the end of the war. They were only prisoners of war a few weeks or a month or two. They were not tortured. And they got pretty good food because it was the end of the war. They were trying to fatten us all up. The psychiatrists that know a lot more about it than I do believe that it was because primarily of the leadership. It was the Jim Stockdale. It was Jeremiah Dent. It was John McCain. From top to bottom, we had leaders in that prison that set the standard. They redefined our mission. They gave us a purpose and set, I think, so many of your 32 essentials for superhero leadership were evidenced in that situation. Imagine leaders that can't see you, can't talk to you, can't fire you, can't give you a bonus. None of this carrot and stick that you think of as a leader or as you would say, in one of your essentials, a manager, make quite a difference between a leader and a manager. These guys became some of the finest leaders I have ever seen, even without the tools that we think of as leadership. I wanted to ask you specifically about Admiral James Stockdale. He got the Medal of Honor for his leadership when you were released. I believe, if I'm not wrong, the leadership program at Annapolis is named after Admiral Stockdale, how many prisoners were there that he actually was commanding? And he had the challenge of the fact that some were Air Force, some Marine, some were Navy, but he had to bring that all together. And I'm sure there are other great leaders stepped forward as well, but Stockdale is somebody who's a modern legend in the United States Navy. And 
He certainly is. And there is, in fact, an entire building, a loose hall. It's a Naval Academy. And his statue, like twice normal size, in his flight gear with his helmet. And the plebes come by and salute Jim Stockdale whenever they come through. He really was an amazing guy. So there were 591 of us total who came home. At any given moment, there might be 250 in any of the given prison camps. And so wherever he was usually the SRO, the senior residing officer in that camp. So his command actually varied from probably 15 guys to probably 250 guys from any given moment in time. But what he did was to redefine our mission. And I think that that's vital in leadership. You have to set the stage. You have to give everybody a purpose. I'll never forget in that little eight foot by eight foot prison cell that I was in at first. And I'm a lieutenant junior grade. I'm 24 years old, okay? And I established communication by tugging on a wire in a crazy code. It was a five by five matrix of the alphabet where any letter would be designated by two numbers, the number of the square down the side and across the top, one, two, three, four, five. And it was just really took a long time to learn the code and then to actually converse. But the guys next door said, hey, we got leadership and they've got rules. And I said, wait a minute, man, I'm in a prison camp. I've been tortured. I'm bleeding. I'm dying. And I got some senior officer down in the end of the cell block. Is going to give me some more rules? No, thank you. <laughs> and somewhat like your turnarounds, I'm sure, when you rolled in, into the new company and you started to say, hey, we got the new rules. We got a new leader here. I'm sure they really didn't like you very much either. There were certainly some that didn't. <laughs> and in that case, where people who couldn't get on with the new program, I was able to basically sever them from the company. But you couldn't do that. No. Nope. Okay, it's a whole different challenge. I used to think I had some tough jobs, but after listening to you, Charlie, I think I had a cakewalk. <laughs> but more about Admiral Stockdale. You're talking about changing, the, if you will, the rules, the culture, the value system of the POWs. And one of the things I've heard that's very interesting to me is a lot of guys under torture broke and they felt terrible. Some even wanted to commit suicide because they had broken the military codes of the code of conduct. conduct yes. mm -hmm. And they felt awful. The truth was that everybody eventually breaks under torture. There's no question about it. Eventually everyone breaks. So how did Stockdale deal with them? These people who wanted to die, kill themselves over what they had done. You remember this from your Navy days. We've got the code of conduct, which says, if you're captured, you're obligated to give only name, rank, show number, date of birth. Name, rank, show number, date of birth. They pumped that into our heads. And we flew over Vietnam thinking we were strong enough. We were fighter pilots. We would never give more than name, rank, show number, date of birth. And then the torture was too great. And I gave in. And so I'm alone in this prison cell and really feeling guilty and thinking, how can I ever go back to my home? How, how can I go back to my country, how can I face my fellow fighter pilots that I had failed in my mission so miserably? And that mindset of guilt and depression of shame that I felt, and, and of course, I thought I was the only one who had given in, that everybody else had been stronger. And truly, I didn't even want to communicate with anybody. And when this guy, he passed a, a wire through a hole in his cell wall across a storeroom and into a hole in my cell wall, and passed me the code and started to communicate. And this is Bob Shoemaker, who later made Admiral, as a matter of fact. And within, oh, I don't know, maybe I got to know this guy for about a week or two. And I said, Bob, I've got a, a terrible confession to make to you. And you may not want to talk to me anymore when you find out what a miserable thing I had done. And he said, what is it, plumber? What did you do? He, I said, I broke. I broke. I didn't mean to, but man, I, the torture was too great. Schumacher said, hell, everybody broke. There's no man in this prison that was as strong as he wanted to be. So pull up your big boy pants. We've got a war to fight. And it turned the whole thing around for me. So he started passing me all the rules that Jim Stockdale came up with. And I was just really reluctant to even believe that there was some kind of value in the discipline that he was rendering over us. Because several of the things 
It took us a lot of extra energy to follow his rules. But I found early on that discipline equals freedom, that we actually had more freedom by following the rules. He redefined the code of conduct. This speaks, that speaks to your number 11 essential for superhero leadership in creating a new culture and the leadership's toughest job. So what kind of style is Stockdale coming up with? And so he came up with a three-word motto, return with honor. That was the motto of the prisoners of war and Jim Stockdale. My wife and one of my sons and I rode a destroyer, just like yours, a guided missile destroyer from 32nd Street in San Diego up to Port Wainimi, where we commissioned this ship. And the name of the ship is the USS Stockdale. And right on the bow of the ship are the three words, return with honor. He set the stage. I think it should be noted that, because I think this is important when you talk about learning to communicate secretly between cells by tapping through various materials to somebody in the cell next and creating your own complete new code. You were, and many others, initially when you were prisoner of war, you were in a cell alone. And those cells were very small, as I understand it. And you were deprived of everything. And one of the ways you were able to hold it together was to actually have a way to talk eventually between the cells that the enemy never figured out. And that was clearly very important. Absolutely. I don't think I'd be alive today if I had been unable to communicate another one of your essentials is being able to communicate as a leader. In fact, the truth is the guys who couldn't communicate, they were put in the far corner of the prison and couldn't communicate with the rest of us. Those guys didn't make it. It was so vital that we have this network, this culture, and it wasn't even the words that we were passing around. It wasn't the super secret escape plans. The value of communication in a prison camp, and I think in leadership, is the validation of another human being. In some of those prison cells, it was dark, really dark. You couldn't see green from red, and you were alone. Some guys were in solitary for four and a half years, but if it was dark and alone, it seemed like you'd lose track. You wouldn't know what was a real memory, what's a hallucination. You need a baseline. You need to validate your sanity. You need a sounding board somewhere. The simple tapping on a wall meant two things. Number one, you're doing something physical, somebody's responding to you, you're alive. And number two, somebody over there cares. And so it was that communication that kept us all alive and kept our spirits going and gave us a purpose. We as human beings, I think, and we desire, it's a, maybe it's, you call it an instinct for with interaction with other human beings. And I would say face-to-face. And I talk about in the speeches and talks that I give about the fact that we have less good leadership in the world than ever. And when I'm asked, why is that? I have a whole host of reasons, but one of them is simply that young people today, I'll define young people as age 30 and under, basically don't get as much face-to-face communication with other human beings there on the internet. The internet is definitely You can't meet people and know them on the internet. You're on your phone and you're socializing on your phone, not face-to-face, for example. So the actual amount of face-to-face communication is much less for young people than it used to be. And that's something we're going to have to overcome. The more real, I'm going to call it real world experiences you have with other human beings and the more diverse, the better. Diverse in terms of people you're dealing with, diversity in terms of geography, where you learn other cultures and why they believe what they do. There's wisdom from that learning that's very important to leaders. But we have to find a way, though, to get back to real-world situations. And it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. I agree. And I speak to young people a lot in schools and churches and seminars. And it's a different group of the kids that have thumbed their way in their communication and their style. And it's really difficult to get to know someone or trust someone because you never really know. You don't get the body language. You don't get the facial expressions. 
that we, I think we all need. Even during the lockdown and COVID, where everybody was wearing masks, when you couldn't see a person smile or frown, it's, it's absolutely a great advantage to a leader to have these face-to-face talks. Yeah, and I have a list in the talks that I do of 15 or so experiences that I think parents, grandparents can give their kids that foster the learning of leadership, basically boil down to experiences face-to-face with other people in a variety of unique situations. I mentioned military service is one. Team sports, whether you're the best athlete or the worst athlete, doesn't really matter. It's all about the group. It's all about group dynamics. I have a grandson who thought he was going to be a starter on the football team. The school had a freshman year. They had a great team. They were nine and one. And he only played for about four minutes the entire season. He was 48th or 47th person on a 50-man squad. And I said to him after the season, so what'd you learn? And I was knocked out by a 14-year-old telling me that I learned quote unquote, that the best leaders are not the best players and vice versa. Interesting. Which to me, not playing as much, but sitting on the bench a lot and observing and watching people, this was a great experience for him. I thought he benefited tremendously from that particular experience. In the prison camps, of course, we had all the way from Navy captains and Air Force colonels right down to the most junior guy of all was a Navy sailor. Seaman Douglas Hegdall was on the cruiser Canberra. You probably sail with Canberra. Yep. And he was on the fantail, the back of the ship, in the middle of the night, and they were doing some inshore firing, and the ship burped and he fell off. They captured this Navy seaman from Clark, South Dakota, and they really didn't know what to do with this kid. They call him the idiot because he played dumb. He wasn't dumb. He played dumb, but he was not dumb. And he decided that, that this experience was going to be advantageous to him, and he could take part, and he could contribute. So I started memorizing all of our names, the 254 of us in that camp, and he memorized our names. Then he went back through the list, and he memorized our identifiers or our Social Security number, 254 numbers. This guy's developing a photographic memory in the prison and still wasn't finished. Went back to the list, memorized our hometowns, our next of kin, the telephone numbers of our wives. Thanks to uh, a lot of things went on in 1969 and 1970, but things improved. Ho Chi Minh, their president died. Our wives back here petitioned our government and governments around the world to put pressure on the enemy, stop torturing my husband. And the enemy decides they're going to send some guys home early as proof of their good treatment. The first guy they went to was John McCain. See, at the time, his dad was Admiral J.S. McCain. He was actually in charge of the Vietnam War while John and I were POWs. So he went to McCain, said, we're sending you home early. McCain said, in your dreams, I'd never embarrass my father by doing that. I'd never give up on the other prisoners that need American medical aid. Take your idea and shove it. And he got in a lot of trouble. They put McCain into solitary confinement for another two years because he refused to go home. Our senior man sent the message to the sailor, Doug Hegdall. Son, I want you to go home first. Hegdall sent back, we're tapping on walls now and tugging on wires in his code. Hegdall sent back, sir, with all due respect, I'd rather stay here with the team. I want to go home with you guys. I want to be part of the solution. Our senior man, Jim Perry sent back, that's not an option. Here's a direct order, shove off. And home he came. Now, you would expect a 21-year-old sailor who'd been captured by accident and starved and humiliated and tortured, suddenly with a brand new suit of clothes on and two years back pay in his pocket, you would expect him to go on vacation. But he started to travel. Hegda went west coast to east and north went to south and went through each one of those hometowns he'd memorized and dialed each one of the telephone numbers he'd memorized and spoke to each one of the wives he'd memorized, told her that her prisoner was alive. So we had these reunions, the POWs. In fact, this is one of our great reunions this year. And in come the admirals and the generals and the senators and the congressmen and the CEOs and the ambassadors, all of our number. But the guy that gets a standing ovation is Seaman Douglas Hegdall. 
showed us a little bit about leadership and speaks to, again, I keep coming up with your essentials. That's number five, a strength in diversity. Yep. I served under some great captains myself, captains of the ship, mm-hmm. and saw them in action when we were in extremis in terms of some of those actions. And I think the, the one thing I, I really remember about them is they were all mostly concerned about the safety of the people on the ship and more than anything else. It's vital that leaders take a personal responsibility and set standards for safety. And and we're not just talking about fire and earthquakes and danger like that, but allowing your people the safety that it takes to risk, to allow your people to not feel that they're going to be ostracized by trying new things and taking new risks and that they will be safe to establish a safe environment in your company, in your squadron, whatever you're doing, so that people can speak out. I think in so many companies that I've worked with, the average person on the cutting room floor is so afraid to go to their manager or even all the way up to the leadership of the company because they feel they're going to be some kind of retribution. And we tried our best in the Navy, even though obviously it's a very disciplined hierarchy in the Navy. If one guy has a lineal number, one number larger than yours, then he's the leader and you're the follower. And there's a certain beauty to that, especially in a prison camp, because you always know who's calling the shots and who's going to be responsible for all this. But even then, if that leader can make you feel comfortable in taking critique and not being afraid to fail, it really makes a lot of sense. One of the essentials that we have reads, welcome problems, worry about the problems you don't know about. And when I would go into a turnaround often, I would say to people, bring me your problems. It's okay. Now you could talk all you want and people aren't going to necessarily suddenly behave that way. You have to prove over a period of time that there will be no retribution, that you really do want to know about problems. And I would say to the organization, I think we can probably solve 95% of our problems by ourselves if we know about them but we have to know about them. And that was always part of the culture change that I would put in these turnarounds, dealing with problems. There are always going to be problems and there's always going to be problems that were unexpected that you might say you didn't rehearse for or plan for. Certainly in the military and war on our ship and your service as well, you couldn't possibly plan for, rehearse for, train for every possible situation that could occur. You just had to be flexible when they did come and be able to cope with that. And the best leaders could, some couldn't. So I think being flexible with problems is a a sign of outstanding leaders. We had some leaders in the prison camps who couldn't handle it. An interesting thing about the prison was, of course, that war went on for the longest held prisoner of Alvarez was there for eight and a half years. And Stockdale was there for seven, and he was a commander when he was shot down. And so later on, some officers came on board in the the prison camps who outranked him, primarily Air Force colonels. And so he'd been there three or four years longer than they had. He had the experience that they did not have. And he had set the tone for all of us, this return with honor. And he had set up a number of regulations for each of us to handle. In fact, One of them was that he set up was ways that we could resist the enemy. And it was one through six. They were called the plums. Had nothing to do with me, but they were called the plums. The resistance number one was to stop bowing. Now, that was one of the things we all had to do. We had to do a low ceremonious bow to anybody we saw. And the officers, the guards, the cooks, anytime somebody came to our cell and open the flap in our door, we had to report there and bow, low ceremonies bow. And resistance number one, plum number one was to resist bowing. Now that sounds really stupid in a way, but I'll tell you this, when they didn't think any of us were communicating with anybody else, they would have 75 prison cells in that camp. And they thought none of us were communicating. Suddenly one morning, Everybody in the whole camp stops bowing 
And it really shook him up just to know that we were not only communicating with each other, but we were so organized. So we had such leadership in there that the leadership could turn us on and off. Now, level six, which is a total camp riot where we would bust out of our cells or attack the guards or whatever. And luckily, we never got to level six. But just that discipline, again, showed the enemy that we were united, that we had leadership, and that we could collect and unify. Now, the interesting part was when these colonels would show up and actually outranked Stockdale, they recognized pretty early on that Stockdale had command and he had these leadership principles and techniques that were working. And these guys would, in several cases, would abdicate their leadership responsibility to Stockdale. And so he would continue to lead, even as a lower-ranking officer. Charlie, I'm wondering about your leadership. We've talked a lot about other people, and I know you to be an outstanding leader. One of the interesting things that I've heard is that you actually were, I guess you could say, appointed the chaplain of one of the groups. And could you talk a little bit about that experience? Because I think, I guess you had people of all religions in the POWs and including people with no religion, but there is strength in the spirit, if you will, of religion. And I'm just wondering, were you religious yourself? Was your upbringing, did that have some effect on you that was useful in that role as chaplain or it is just something you embraced then? I was raised in a Christian community. And at the Naval Academy, I was a member of what we call the Officers Christian Union to prepare officers to be lay leaders aboard ships where chaplains weren't available. So I, I had a background in Christianity. In the prisons, we were all separated in a lot of different camps, dotted all around. But there was a raid on a camp called Sante. And the Sante raid, a bunch of Green Berets came in and attacked this camp. This frightened the enemy, and they put us all back down into the Hanoi Hilton, the Wallow, as they called it, prison camp in downtown Hanoi. And they didn't have enough cells, and so we were crammed in these cells, in a cell with 56 other guys, 57 of us total, in a cell that was about 20 feet wide and 30 feet long. And so we were pressed in there like sardines, but it was wonderful because finally we were getting together. And I was appointed chaplain of that unit because our leadership and the leader of that unit was a very devout fundamentalist Christian, and he wanted a church service. And so I, with my background, I set up this church service on Sunday morning and, and Wednesday evening, and some of our guys, in fact, the atheists would usually be the guards. They were happy to watch the door to make sure that no guard would come in and find us because any kind of religion was foreboding. The guys were, were tortured just to to make a crucifix out of a couple of sticks. And I did my best to try to lead this group in the faith, in, in all faiths. I proposed to the leader that we go on a hunger strike to get a Bible. I tried to collect Bible verses from all the guys and try to put this stuff together, but we wanted a Bible. So we stopped eating. They countered by cutting off our water. And I can tell you that you can live a long time without rice, but you don't go very far without water. And about the second day, they were getting really thirsty. The guys in the, the cell next to ours were on a hunger strike. They were getting their water. We burrowed a hole in the wall between ourselves, put a tar paper tube through there, and they poured half their ration of water, and we caught the drops on the other side, and we were going to survive. So about the third day, they got really upset. They hauled our senior guy out of there and put him in a stockade. So now it's the Jewish guy. He's the leader. He said, continue the hunger strike. And we did. Then they pulled him out of there. I'm very happy to be a very junior guy. It was going to take him a long time to get to me. <laughs> so they pulled the top two guys out. Here's the atheist. I'm wondering what this guy's going to do. <laughs> he said, continue the hunger strike. <laughs> We're going to get that Bible for you guys. And he did. And they brought a Bible, and then we, for a day and a half, we copied from two sides of a page on pieces of toilet paper and ink made from brick dust or ashes, copied the Word of God. But the leadership principle here involved, I think, is this. Regardless of your personal feelings, 
if there is a mission involved and you need to accomplish that mission and everybody is behind that mission, you continue the strike. You continue that hunger strike as the atheist guy did. I can relate to that to some degree on the service on my ship because I think people who have not been in the military and in some cases not been in combat don't appreciate the bonding that goes on between the individuals of a certain unit. And your unit can be a squad of five people in the army, or it can be an aircraft carrier with 4,000 people in the so-called unit. And you're all dependent on other people for survival. And they are dependent on you. Now, in my case, my ship had 300 sailors and 20 officers, but we were all dependent on each other in any one situation to react appropriately. One of the great things that I observed because of that bonding over depending on each other is a lot of diverse people that may have had uh, negative feelings about other people based on their color, their religion, their ethnic background, and so on. Over a period of time, when you really got to know these other people that were like that, that were on your team, if you will, to survive, those prejudices went away. And I think this leads to, again, one of the 32 essentials that we talk about has to do with diversity. And you mentioned it a little earlier, strength in diversity. I think that organizations, I've often come into situations where there wasn't a lot of diversity in the particular business I was taking over. I've had situations where Believe it or not, in certain department, the leader would only hire people of a certain religion or a certain color mm-hmm. or a certain whatever. And those people, for me, their groups never performed. They always underperformed. And that had to be changed. Diversity is huge. You yeah. don't really realize the value of a person that's not your equal, if you will, your color, your place in life. Coming up here on, on the plane, I was seated on the aisle and this beautiful girl comes out. Oh, she's going to sit next to me. Wow, this is, she's got this little puppy. <laughs> she's sitting there. She strikes up the conversation. I didn't. And I saw her just as a beautiful girl. And I found out that she was going to Tel Aviv, that she was an Israeli. And that she had been in the army as they are conscripted in Israel for two years. The, the girls were two years and the guys were three years in the army there. And she was a sharpshooter. <laughs> and so in getting to know this lady, my whole impression of her changed just because we were face to face and had that commonality of having served in the military. And now she's in civilian life. She's a branch manager of a pharmaceutical company. And so you just really never know. In fact, Doug Hegdall, when he first showed up in the prison camp, we didn't really expect much from this sailor. Um, He was a sailor. We were officers. Several years after I came back from Vietnam, speaking of diversity and sailors and officers, this 15 years after I was released, I was in a restaurant in Kansas City where I used to live. And a guy kept catching my eye, and I caught his, but I didn't recognize him. And he finally got up, walked over to my table, pointed at me, and he said, you're Captain Plum. I said, yes, sir, I'm Captain Plum. He said, you're that guy. You were part of that Top Gun outfit and flew F-4s off the Kitty Hawk, and you were shot down. You parachuted into enemy hands, and you spent six years as a prisoner of war. And I was dumbfounded that this guy was telling my whole story. I said, how did you know all that? He said, I'm the pararigger. I packed your parachute. (laughs) I was really dumbfounded at that moment. I could barely stagger to my feet, reach out a very grateful hand of thanks. He grabbed my hand, he pumped my arm, and he said, I guess it worked, sir. (laughs) I said, yes, sir, indeed it did. And and I must tell you, I've said a lot of prayers of you. Thanks for your nimble fingers, but I had no idea I'd ever have the opportunity of expressing my gratitude in person. We got to talk that night. There was a tradition in the Navy. I don't know if it's still valid, but if you use somebody else's parachute, you buy him a drink. And I bought him several drinks that night. <laughs> but he, a very humble guy, he said, I only packed your physical parachute. And he said, you needed a lot more than that to survive and even thrive through that experience. 
your mental parachute, your spiritual parachute, your psychological parachute, your mom. I said, yeah, she taught me a lot about forgiveness. He said, and your dad. I said, yeah, he taught me a lot about discipline. And I thought to myself, yeah, those two things, forgiveness and discipline, sure helped me. And they sure packed my parachute and given me those principles of survival. And so you just never know in life who's packing your parachute. In fact, I tell my audiences, have you thanked them lately? <laughs> because they're a very essential, even vital part of your life. Charlie, I wanted to talk about heroes for a minute. I don't want to embarrass you, but I obviously I think anyone who meets you knows your story, views you as, again, a superhero. And when I was in the Navy, I studied a lot of Navy history, and I had a number of heroes in my mind from past Navy conflicts and what have you. Maybe my biggest hero, just from reading, was a guy named John Paul Jones, who is considered the father of the Navy today. John Paul Jones did some very daring things with his ships, including attacking, you might say, behind enemy lines when it was completely unexpected in the wars with England. And he actually, through circumstance, died in Paris and was buried in Paris. And some years after he died, he was exhumed and brought to the Naval Academy. And today, if you visit the Naval Academy, you will see his sepulcher, if you want to call it that, the memorial to him and his ashes being underneath the memorial. And it's a very big deal. Did you have some heroes from history, great leaders that we could learn from? Peter, we have some of the same heroes, I'm sure. And John Paul Jones, certainly one of them, having been at the Naval Academy and in the crypt there, his crypt is guarded 24 hours a day. It's almost like the Tomb of the Unknown. And we had to learn his qualifications of a Naval officer, and I still remember it today. And I think it really applies to the things we're talking about, to the leadership that he had. And he started off and, he, and being the father of the Navy, he said this, it is by no means enough that an officer of the Navy should be a capable mariner. He must be that, of course, but also a great deal more. He should be, as well, a gentleman of liberal education, refined manners, punctilious courtesy, and the nicest sense of personal honor. He should be the soul of tact, patience, justice, firmness, and charity. No meritorious act of a subordinate should escape his attention or be left to pass without its proper reward, even if that reward is only a word of approval. Conversely, he should not be blind to a single fault of any subordinate. And this is where it starts talking about leadership, I believe. This is my favorite part. At the same time, he should be quick and unfailing to distinguish error from malice, thoughtlessness from incompetency, and well-meant shortcomings from stupid or heedless blunder. <laughs> How's that for leadership? <laughs> I am definitely going to use that, Charlie, <laughs> my, some of my talks on leadership to groups. I'm going to have to read it, however. I don't think I'm capable of <laughs> memorizing it the way you have. But it's great. There's so many great heroes in the Navy, I think, and so many that never will get attention, never have and never will. Our superintendent at the Naval Academy, Admiral Charles Kirkpatrick, was the superintendent. We called him the soup. This guy has gold from his wrist all over to his shoulder. And what a motivator this guy was. He would stand up in front of the big pep rallies before the football games, and the guy would clench his fists. You could see the veins running his brow, and he would say, you guys can do anything you set your minds to do. You guys can do anything you, it was this hype. Was he messing with their minds? Mental manipulation? Did it work? Those four years, the Naval Academy took a ragtag football team and produced two Heisman Trophy winners in four years, Roger Staubach and Joe Bolino. But he was right. We became the number two. Then we rated as the number one college team in the nation in football for a while. But best of all, we beat Army four times straight. <laughs> so the guy was right. And what a motivator he was to take that football team and the rest of us as well, because it wasn't just a football team that he motivated. We were always under the tutelage, uh, the leadership of this Charles Kirkpatrick. 
Charlie, this has really been a pleasure. And I learned a lot, as I always do from our guests, but particularly from you. We've known each other a while, but I just heard some things I'd never heard before. And all right on point, I must say. So I just want to thank you very much for being here today. I've seen some of your motivational talks. And then if anyone listening has the opportunity to meet or listen to Captain Charlie Plum, you should absolutely do everything you can to make that happen. Best of luck to you, Charlie. And thanks again. Captain Plum is a leader in every sense of the word. Here are a few things I hope you took away from our conversation. These takeaways tie very nicely to our 32 essentials for superhero leadership. Our first takeaway was that trust and camaraderie are essential in a team, especially in high-stakes situations like combat missions. And this takeaway really refers to number 27 on our list of 32 essentials. Number 27 is maintain your energy, both mental and physical. Another takeaway was that effective leaders redefine the mission, set a purpose, and provide a sense of unity and direction. And I would refer you to number three on our list of essentials. Number three reads, communicate constant messages and walk the talk. The third takeaway that I think we got from our conversation was that face-to-face communication is vital for validation, understanding, and building trust among team members. And in this case, I'd refer you to number 13 on our list of essentials. Number 13 says, technology can't dominate communications. Face-to-face is best. Understand culture in other countries by being there, if possible. We also talked about the fact that safety is a key responsibility of leaders, both in terms of physical safety and creating an environment where people feel safe to take risks and speak out. Please take a look at number two on our list of essentials, which reads, be human, honest, tell people what you really think, admit your mistakes. We also talked about diversity. And embracing diversity in a team leads to greater understanding, empathy, and better problem solving. Here we want to refer to essential number five, which reads, try to avoid all prejudices regarding leadership styles. There is strength in diversity. And finally, we thought that discipline, forgiveness, and personal honor are important qualities for leaders to cultivate. And our number four reads, listen, even when you know the answers, be empathetic in all your actions. One of the unique benefits of this podcast is your ability to make Peter a part of your leadership team. Peter's looking forward to sharing his experiences with fellow leaders and businesses of all sizes. If you have a particular business concern or challenge, Peter wants to help. So send your written or recorded question to Peter at shlpodcast.com. That's Peter at shl for superhero leadership podcast.com. Here is this week's question. Hi, Peter. This is Steve. Thank you for considering my question. I've currently been tasked with a turnaround situation for a business. One of the challenges I'm facing is attracting the right people into a situation that very well could end in failure. It could also, if we're successful, result in professional and financial positive rewards. But I find that most people really looking for a safer job with a good paycheck. What qualities in people should I be looking for in a turnaround situation? Well, Steve, thanks for your question. It's a good one, and it's a difficult question. And I always try to look for people, both in their backgrounds and when I interview them, that suggest that they're able, from a personality standpoint, to cope with an uncertain environment. Some years ago, I was looking for a head of marketing for one of the companies I was turning around. And I interviewed someone who I liked an awful lot. But he was from, and his entire career had been in big corporations, and he had done very well there. Coming to a turnaround situation is quite different. When I interviewed this particular individual, I noticed that what his career had been like, and I knew that switching to 
the company I was running would be a big change for him. And I asked him about this, you know, whether he understood all of that. And then I asked him, you know, why would you come here? And he said, working for a big corporation, he was never going to get rich, although he'd had some very nice jobs. And so he was attracted to the money situation that if we were successful and he was a senior person in the company, he would do very well financially. And I was still very concerned about him, but I did really like him personally and I hired him. And after about three months, I had noticed that when we got in meetings with where decision-making was required. And I remember one meeting that had to do with the package design for a new product that we were working on. We had to make a decision and go. And he just couldn't do it. It It's very hard for him to go with any kind of gut because he was so used to having all of this background information. Anyway, we moved forward. The group did make a decision and so on. And a couple of weeks later, he knocked on the door of my office and came in and he said to me, Peter, I'm sorry, but I want to let you know I'm leaving the company. And part of me was not surprised because I could see this was not an atmosphere for him. But sorry to see him go. And this was someone that was a quality person. and I wish, you know, continued success, whatever he did. And I said to him, so what company are you going to? And he said, I'm not going to any company. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I'm having a nervous breakdown. And obviously I felt terrible for him. And I felt a little guilty, frankly, for hiring him to get him in a situation where he was having that much trouble. The good news is that he ultimately went back to another big company, similar to the one he had been in previously, and actually did very well. I think, Steve, that this is a tough one, but I try to look at people's backgrounds. I try to see how independent-minded they are in an interview. I like to see what kind of diverse experiences they've had in jobs, even in their personal life. I like to see that they've been in situations where there was uncertainty before and they coped. Thanks for your question, Steve, and the best of luck to you in your turnaround. That's it for this episode of Superhero Leadership. Again, I want to thank Captain Charlie Plum for joining me, and I hope you will join me again next time. Until then, stay focused, stay driven, and keep leading like a superhero with purpose, passion, and integrity. I'm Peter Cuneo. Hey, by the way, if you haven't gotten your free copy of the 32 Essentials for Superhero Leadership, please go to our website at petercuneo.com.